G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Life, Culture and Current Events from a Biblical Perspective, 2020 on Vision. We're going to be talking about the biggest Bible mistakes that Christians make. Times are changing so rapidly, aren't they? It's a challenging time to be keeping up. It's tempting for some to hide away from keeping up with, say, the new emerging generation that perhaps thinks, dresses, processes the world in a different way. But as Christians, we're called to adjust to our contemporary surroundings And that might mean keeping relevant to emerging generations. So we're turning our attention today to perhaps the biggest mistakes that we make as Christians in the way we talk to people and how we use the Bible. We might ask all sorts of questions. Are we trying to be too complicated in the way that we deliver a message of the gospel from the Bible? Or are we just too simplistic? Are people expecting that you ought to be more sophisticated? Do we emphasize Jesus' love or his justice? Do we use scripture alone or no scripture at all? (laughs) There's uh, an interesting one. I'm sure it might come up in conversation. Should I use a King James Bible or a modern translation? Well, our special guest today is Shane Willard. Shane is a Bible teacher who typically travels the world but has been touring Australian churches through this past year. He has degrees in clinical psychology and theology and he has been mentored by a pastor with rabbinical training approaching the scriptures from a Hebraic perspective. Shane Willard leads Shane Willard Ministries. He's our special guest through this coming hour. Shane, a special welcome along to 2020. Hi, Neil. So good to be here with you. Thank you for having me. Hey, Shane. I mentioned you're normally traveling the world. Uh, People will notice you've got an American accent. You're in Australia and you sort of arrived. Is it because you couldn't get home or you decided to stay on a little longer? What was your reasoning for remaining in Australia? Well, so both. Uh, So my my year normally um, starts in Australia February 1st. So always uh, I'm in Australia or New Zealand from February 1st to, say, the first part of June. And then I, um, I end up in Perth, and then I go from there to Singapore, KL, South Africa, Europe. And then I'm normally back in Australia or New Zealand from the end of July um, to the first part of October. Um, and then I'm in America, October, November, December, January. That's my normal sort of schedule. And, of course, um, with the circumstances uh, in the world, the border wasn't open. And so um, I did not come to Australia to escape COVID. I was here anyway, but then um, when it came time for me to go back, it was um, impossible. Okay, well, we might talk some more about that, but let's get to your approach to the Bible. And for some people, it's going to sound like, oh, this sounds a little bit strange and different. But your approach to the Bible being shaped in a particular way, I mentioned you have degrees in clinical psychology and in theology, and that you were mentored by a pastor with rabbinical training. So that sort of Hebraic perspective there. Give us a little insight here as we get things underway with a conversation like this, Shane. What is it that shapes you that looks a little bit different to what others have been shaped by? 
Well, I, I think it, like anybody, your story shapes you. Like it is, it is impossible to uh, read the scriptures absent of whatever bias from the background that you were born into. And and the interesting part about that is no one really chooses that. So um, so my background is very diverse. I, I grew up um, in an in a Pentecostal holiness situation in the South in America, like a like as rigid fundamentalist as you could get, and and actually. Uh, you know, also was raised in a fundamentalist Baptist school. So academically, I was th- there was this real staunch fundamentalism in the Baptist side of things, and then religiously, uh, there was uh, this staunch fundamentalism in the Pentecostal side of it. And and then when I graduated from high school, I went to a, a basically a Reformed seminary, um, Columbia International, and then from there uh, I was. Uh, had the opportunity to be mentored by a, just a great pastor who understood the Hebrew side of things. So, so that mix allows me to sort of take the scriptures and go, well, I, I can definitely read it from their perspective. I can definitely read it from their perspective. I can read it from that perspective and understand that in each side of it, these are fully devoted followers of Jesus. These are not people that are in or out. or it's, they, Those are not the questions. The question is, is why would a Christian tradition read that scripture that way? And, um, and because of the broadness of it, it gives me sort of a, a way of looking at it that says, wait a minute, this thing's more like a 70-fasted diamond, and it depends on how you turn it as to how the light refracts through it. And um, and it, and that's a very helpful way to make the Bible come alive. Well, there's a good reason there, isn't there, for listeners today to stay tuned in here and perhaps even lean in a little closer to the radio because not all of us have been shaped in a way that we have this Hebraic perspective about the Bible. Now, I assume here, Shane, when we talk about a Hebraic perspective, the way the Hebrews uh, might look at some of that Bible history, what we are is appreciating, and no doubt, if we zero this in, appreciating the culture that Jesus was born into and uh, that doesn't matter where you were born what culture what time somehow or other you've got to come back to what things were like in that first century is that what it means to have a Hebraic perspective well yeah I think that's a good way to say it like to and to apply it to the whole Bible not just to the Gospels and Jesus to, to ask what did the original author intend to say to the original audience? And how did that original audience hear those words? Because words matter less than how we picture words functioning, right? So I'll, I'll give you a couple examples so that it's not t- too um, abstract, right? So if we were to say something like, Jesus is the judge, right? Now, that's true, but what matters more than that is the picture that creates. And so for most people, um, saying Jesus is the judge is a judicial officer. So they picture this judicial officer like a, a court. And, um, but, the, but the Hebrew word for judge is, um, is not a court official at all. It's, it's someone anointed by God to be your defender and rescue you from whatever is oppressing you. Like there's an entire book in the Bible called the Book of Judges, and those people were not court officials. Those were people anointed by God to set people free from what's oppressing them. And so there's a way that you can say something that's true, but it gives a false image of how that truth works. So like as another example, when Jesus said, 
um, uh, avoid the evil eye. Like he, he talks about an evil eye and a good eye. And he says, if your eye is full of light, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is full of evil, your whole body will be full of evil. And if the light that is in you is actually darkness, how great is the darkness? But then the next sentence almost makes no sense. He says, and remember, you can't serve God and money. You can't serve God and mammon. And so, um, and so what's he talking about there? And so there's a way you could say, Jesus said to avoid the evil eye, right? And that, that's true. But what matters more than that is the imagination that that creates, right? So a lot of people hear that and they go, don't look at evil things, right? And, and true, and that has merit on, on its own. But that is not at all what that passage is talking about. In, in the first century, to say the phrase evil eye was a metaphor for greed, and to say a phrase "eye of light" was a metaphor for generosity. So, if somebody, so the etymology of the phrase "don't give me the evil eye" is "don't be stingy," "don't be stingy with me." So, so if you if you read that in its in its metaphorical context, essentially Jesus is saying this: if you're generous, um, that's going to lead you to a life where more generosity flows to you. If you're greedy, that's going to lead you to a life where that just it's ubiquitous to everything around you. Um, but if your generosity has greedy motives, that's real bad. And remember, you can't serve God and mammon. Wow. Okay. Uh, there's real light shed on those verses there. And I think listeners uh, will be across this idea that you can interpret things in different ways. And if you look to a Hebraic perspective, you're going to be looking at some of those cultural issues around the way we might interpret the Bible. Powerful, because given your a testimony, Shane, where you say you were born up in that, brought up in that sort of Pentecostal, and then the, you know you studied under Reformed uh, ministry, and so you've got this sort of a little bit here and a little bit there, different ways that people interpret the Bible. Let me ask sure. you if there's a way we can sort of cut across uh, denominational boundaries here, because oftentimes we'll talk about having a relationship with God. And uh, that might cut across uh, all those sorts of boundaries that we have denominationally. But when we talk about having relationship with God, does that in some way soften some of the things here? Because uh, obviously our faith is not all about just an intellectual pursuit of getting things right. How is a relationship with God uh, useful in the way that we might talk about how the Bible speaks? Well, I think it's, I don't, I don't think it's useful. I think it's critical um, because the... the uh, the early church, when they put the Bible together, um, what we call the Bible, they, they made an incredible sort of axiom around it. And they said, the only way to read Scripture is through the cruciform lens of the crucified Christ. In other words, if God is like Jesus, exactly like Jesus, God had always been like Jesus. People didn't know that, but now we do. That you have to read the entirety of Scripture through the lens of your relationship with God. So in what I mean by that is, is that whatever you think God is will get stamped into your highest moral preference. So, and so as the, the great theologian GK Beale said it, he said, we become what we worship. Um, that's that there's a scripture around that too. In Psalm 135, I think where it says uh, they, they form God in their own image and then they become what they worship. The, the idea is that, if we think God is a racist, for instance, then we'll justify racism. If we think God is for torture, then we'll be pro-torture. We'll justify that. If we think God uses violence to get his way, 
then we'll justify using violence to get our way because we become what we worship. So it is, it's actually impossible to read the scriptures without using your lens of whatever you think God is. We're, we're doing that anyway. So, so if, we, um, if, if we read the scripture through a non-cruciform lens, it, it creates a real problem. I, I like the way um, uh, Bishop Lahalo says it. He says that um, you, the Bible is like a Rorschach test. It, it tells me more about what you think God is than what God actually is. So in other words, how you, how you read scripture tells me a lot about what you think God is. And it actually tells me more about what you think God is than what God actually is. So in Holy Week or Passion Week, and this coming Friday is Good Friday, Crucifixion Day, what a, what a time to be thinking about these sorts of issues because oftentimes uh, people will hear, Christians will hear, of course the cross is central, but sometimes we don't appreciate the meaning and uh, the value of what we do with our own thinking about Jesus if we leave the cross out of that centrality. But as you say, when the cross is central, uh, we're able to look at all the things of the Bible through that cruciform lens. So coming up to Good Friday, is this a good time to be talking about this sort of thing, Shane? I think it would be the, I think it's the, the whole point um, that, that the, the truce and the meanings of the cross and resurrection uh, was an event that birthed an entire movement. Um, and in those first century Christians, um, they, they did not start a new movement and ultimately get killed for it because of something they read. It was because of what they saw. And, that's, and that is an important uh, distinction. And when you look at the writings of the people who witnessed it firsthand or were impacted by it firsthand, um, and they start listing the meanings of the cross and resurrection. Um, and what that, because if, if I was to say to you, somebody died and rose again, um, the, the question should be, so? And, and so what? So what is that? How is that? I, I, I need to go to Woolworths and feed my family. And right. So what does that mean for how we live our lives? And a lot of the New Testament is dedicated to, hey, look at that figure of Christ on the cross and understand this is what this means for our world. And this is why this is why proving that it actually happens, it, 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 proving that the cross and resurrection was historical, it, it has its place. But actually, uh, there's a way you can do that in a boring way. Actually, the power of the truth of the cross and resurrection is found in the infinite expiration of the meanings of it. Like, death doesn't get the last word. Jesus does. Like, um, you can be treated unjustly and still be empowered to be a forgiving, loving person. Um, like, that the cross was the end of hostility. Like Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, since Christ has been raised... Anything you do for God is never wasted. Like, just think about that one phrase. Like, because of the resurrection, if you did it for God, nothing is wasted. You didn't do it in vain. And you're going, oh, man, imagine if we actually believed that. Imagine if we actually lived in such a way where we knew that if we did it for God, whether it worked or whether it didn't work, nothing is wasted. Wow. Um, That's a big thing. A biblical perspective on life, culture, and current events. This is 2020 on Vision Christian Radio.
Wonderful to have you with us. Tuesday edition 2020. Special guest this hour is Shane Willard. He leads Shane Willard Ministries and a different sort of a conversation today where we've got the perspectives coming from someone who is a clinical psychologist, theologian, mentored by a pastor with rabbinical training approaching the scriptures with a Hebraic perspective. And we're talking about some of the common and perhaps even the biggest mistakes that we as Christians might make when we're looking at the Bible and looking at issues of, say, Easter that's coming up, issues around the cross. In fact, I don't want to let go of talking about the cross too quickly here. You might have your own thoughts. Talk back line open, 1-800-316-316. You can respond to our question on Facebook too. And the question today asks, what is the biggest mistake you see Christians make when they use the Bible or sharing their faith? But Shane, let's come back to this cross. As I said, the most enduring symbol of Christianity. The cross is present in most churches around the place. We see that symbol of the cross. It's got a wonderful way of bringing us into the meaning of the cross. How do you describe, from the perspective that you come from, this whole issue of the meaning of the cross? Uh, well, I, I think the cross, I think it's important to say that whatever we whatever we cover here would not be exhaustive. Like if, if I don't pick the one meaning that someone that's listening is their favorite, it's not that I don't think it's true. It's just you can't exhaust all the meanings of the cross in one interview and, and do any of it justice. Um, but uh, but uh, to give you to give you one that uh, that that Paul Paul pointed out in Ephesians, he says that he ended the hostility by making one new man at the cross. Um, and, and, and that in the context of that passage was not between us and God, but that because he's made peace between us and God, we should be inspired by that to never escalate conflict with each other, that we should look at the figure of Christ on the cross and go, it doesn't matter how unjustly someone treats somebody, we can be empowered by Christ to be peacemakers. Jesus said it in his first sermon. He said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they're the children of God. They're the sons of God. And, and, and what's, what's confronting about that is, is that if, if I was to give a thousand Christians a piece of paper and say, write down the criteria for being considered a child of God, where would our basic disposition and conflict fall on that list? And, and, and for most people, it, it might not make the list. But actually, the first time Jesus gave a criteria for what it means to be a child of God he talked about our basic disposition and conflict. He said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they're the children of God. And then 34 verses later, he says, uh, you've heard it said to love your, love your friends and, and curse your enemies. But I say to you um, to bless your enemies and pray for those who despitefully use you so that you may be children of your father in heaven. So twice in the same sermon, um, two minutes apart, probably, he was speaking it like just going for it like a sermon. Um, he ties our basic disposition and conflict to whether we'll be seen in the world as children of God. In other words, the world should look at Christians and go, I'm not sure, right, wrong, or indifferent, they handle conflict the best. If God was actually a man, that is the example of how they would handle, con- how God would handle conflict. And, um, and, and that's one lesson you learn from the cross, is, is you look at that and go, wow, man, you know, how am I doing with that? Wonderful stuff. 1-800-316-316 to join in our conversation today. Shane, let's take a call. Shirley is on the line from Bowen in Queensland. Hello, Shirley. Welcome along. Good morning, Neil. How are you today? Well, thank you, Shirley. What are your thoughts for our conversation? 
Well, I was just curious, like revelation is a very big thing, especially these days that we're living in. And there's like about four opinions of the church of, you know, the interpretations of revelation. But I was wondering, is it more literal or is it more like sort of showing the glorious love of Jesus of how he is with us? I just really struggle sometimes to conceive, like, is it a bit of both or how does it work? Does, does um Shane think. Wonderful stuff, Shirley. Uh, Shane, your thoughts for Shirley on Revelation? Okay, well, so um, in in today's Christian world, there are fully devoted followers of Christ who read Revelation in all the ways that she that, that, that she pointed out. And so, um, so there's people who see it as a future book. There are people who see it as a historical book. Um, and then there are people who see it as a hybrid. And no matter how you read it, I'm not mad at you. Like it doesn't, it, it doesn't worry me. I wouldn't, um, I, 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 I wouldn't draw any judgments on that. My question isn't, isn't how you read it. It's what do you do with what you read? Um, and so um, I can tell you that uh, the historical view um, is that Revelation is theopoetic, apocalyptic poetry um, about the oppression of the Roman Empire and and our call as Christ followers to stand against and not participate in that system that marginalizes and oppresses 99% of the world to enrich the 1% in Rome. And so when you look at it that way, I, I find it, I'm not mad at people or upset at them, I, I, but people who, who try to read it literally I don't know how you can read a theopoetic apocalyptic poetry as literal and do any justice to what the original author intended. Um, like, I, you know, there's all kinds of things in there, like locust wearing body armor. I, 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 I don't there's there's two ways to read that one that you can wait for locust to wear body armor or you could see a theopoetic apocalyptically and that he's he's calling the Roman military occupation a bunch of bugs. Right. So you, there's there's two ways to look at it. This guy named John, who's been exiled by the Caesar, is writing to these seven churches in Asia Minor living under real oppression of a Roman Empire. I, I don't think he was thinking about 2021. Shirley, does that answer your question? <clears throat> yes, that, that was really good. Thank you so much. Thank you, Shirley. I love Bowen, by the way. I've been up there many times. You have a great town. Yes, yeah, it's beautiful. And the temperature's gorgeous now. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Yeah, Shirley, you. wonderful to hear from you. Our talkback line open on 1-800-316-316. Uh, interesting to be able to get into the way we might interpret, say, a book like the book of Revelation. Let's bring Revelation back to what we were talking about a little earlier, Shane. The idea that you might be able to interpret all of those different dimensions of the Bible uh, through this lens of the cross. So uh, when we talk about Revelation, we're often thinking about the unfolding events of a future, but how do we actually see Revelation when we read it now? Is it pointing us back to this position of the cross? Well, I think I think it has to. And if, and if, if you want, if your listeners want to read some academic literature on this, um, like from real scholars, you know, not not our not our cousin Melissa, who runs the preschool mothers group in Logan, you know, who thinks they know something about about ancient literature. But like N.T. Wright, who's the top New Testament scholar in the world, he wrote a book called Revelation for the Everyman. Um, David De Silva, who I think is the dean of ancient history at Emory University, he wrote a book called Unholy Allegiances, which is a book about first century Roman government in Asia Minor. And 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 then he he just he reads the book of Revelation over the top of it, and it makes so much more sense. Um, so that that's one thought. The other thought is is that Revelation is 
when Revelation was put into the scripture, um, one of the caveats uh, that was agreed to when it was agreed that it would be a part of the canon was that it wouldn't be read as a future book, but rather a call to worship and a call to examine our heart as to where we are, whether we are participating with a system of the beast that holds people down and marginalizes them or the system of the slain lamb. The idea is, is that if in a world that believes Caesar was God, the idea was, was that um, if God was actually a man, he wouldn't be raping, oppressing, pillaging, and, and, and holding down 99% of the, of the world to, to profit the 1%. He would be lifting the lowly to the level of the elite. He would not be sitting above the creation story and judging it or banishing it or, or criticizing it. He would be engaging the broken narrative in order to make a better narrative. And so the writer of Revelation keeps coming back to the, 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 real, the real God is the one that's willing to suffer with the story, not one sitting above it. So when we say, who is the real God? Revelation is telling us the real God is Jesus Christ, uh, the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. He's the one who's revealed in that book of Revelation. A hundred percent. It's all it's it's all about the exaltation of the Lamb over over Caesar. And it, and that doesn't that doesn't help us if we don't stop and remember that in that world they thought that Caesar was God in flesh. And so, um, and so there's a real challenge to, well, if God was actually in flesh on the earth, how would God be acting? And, and the idea is, is, is that he, he definitely wouldn't be acting like that. And um, he, he would be more acting like this. And, and, they, and the way they got there was that the ultimate, final, and full way to see God is through the, is, is through the cruciform Christ and the resurrection. Well, fabulous insights. Our special guest this hour is Shane Willard. Shane leads Shane Willard Ministries. Shane, you are in Australia, perhaps for an indefinite time. You've got a fairly full diary as it is. I know you had to cancel uh, speaking at an engagement in Melbourne because of some lockdown issues that are happening in southeast Queensland right now. But yeah. uh, but have you still got a few openings for people to book you? Uh, how do they get in touch with you? I guess through your through your website, shanewillardministries.org. But are there some openings there? Uh, well, right now it's fully booked. Um, but obviously, um, there there are there are new developments every day, and so like I'll, I'll give you an example that the almost the whole book of May um, is booked in New Zealand. But if New Zealand doesn't open the border, that then is open, um, and so it's same with the end of July. So um, right now it's all booked, but um, but as we have found in the last year and a half or so, um, these things are fluid in nature. But you can um, you can go to our website. Um, and there's a contact us and um, and our office will will look at your request and we'll do everything we can to to, uh, to do what we can do. Shane, let's continue in our conversation because we were talking in the first part of our discussion before the news about uh, largely what happens in a cultural context and the way we see the Bible, the way we see the future, say the book of Revelation and how that might be interpreted in the present. Let's start to talk about perhaps some of the differences in the way that we might see the Bible as a literary document, that it's full of different genres of literature. What are your thoughts here about the way we can confuse those? And that gives us all sorts of problems. Well, I think it's the biggest problem. Um, as I've been talking to people under 30, 
about the way their parents and grandparents uh, talked to them or presented the scripture. And I want to be clear about this. No one's malicious or anything like that. It's just that it's just you only know what you were taught. And um, is genre confusion. Um, and genre confusion is is any time um, that you read literature that was intended by the author to be in one genre as if it's another genre. So if you read a poem as if it was a history book, that's genre confusion. And I'll, so I'll give you I'll give you a great example of genre confusion is reading proverbs as if they're promises. Well, th- that's that doesn't do proverbs any justice at all. Um, proverbs are proverbs. They are wisdom statements about how wisdom works in our world, but it's not a promise. I'll give you an example. Um, Proverbs uh, 24, I think, says if you answer your enemy softly, um, their anger will turn from you. Now, that is wisdom. That is that is an incredible way to live your life. And as a pattern and habit of living, we should be soft-spoken in conflict. But it's but it's not a promise. I think everybody listening here would have had a moment where they stayed soft in conflict and the other person got mad. And if that's your story then that ties straight to the Easter story. Jesus answered his enemies softly and they killed him. And it wasn't because they it wasn't because Jesus didn't have enough faith in the word. It's because sometimes people kill you. And and, and proverbs aren't promises. They are proverbs uh, they're there this is how wisdom looks like lived out. Um and sometimes you live out wisdom and the other person still has free will and responds poorly. But if you were told you know, that God wrote the Bible and it's all a promise and it's all right. It's it's well, um, you're not going to do any justice to that because, you know, even in the Christ story, he answered his enemies softly and they killed him. Um, Paul uh, answered his enemies uh, softly and they killed him. And so in these people, James, there's a lot of, of history on how James died. And, you know, you, you, these people uh, lived in wisdom and uh, their adversaries killed them. And so that doesn't mean the proverb isn't true. It actually means it's a proverb. And so that's a that's a great example of genre confusion. And Shane, it creates a problem for us because we know that there are going to be some things that we hold in our faith in a simplistic way. And what you're describing here gets a little bit more sophisticated and for so many, a lot more complicated. And we think, well, we haven't got a hope of being able to understand all of those complexities. And even uh, mm-hmm. for some of the things you're describing today, some people perhaps might feel as though that's oh, that's sounding a little bit too hard. So is there a, a learning and a maturing that happens where we would understand those things that we hold with simplistic faith? And those things that we might need to dig deeper in, in a more sophisticated way, if we're growing in maturity. Yeah, I think I, I, I think once again, you know, words matter less than how we picture them functioning. So I, I think I think our faith, by definition, should be simplistic, um, and and in the sense that it all rises and falls on an event, um, the, the the cross and resurrection. Um, in the other sense, though, um, you know, the, the journey, the journey and process of faith will inevitably have nuances and complexities to it. And that doesn't that makes it beautiful. Um, now, now, with the genre as an example, um, the, the, the people who put the Bible together, uh, they did us a big favor by organizing the table of contents around genre instead of chronology, which is very helpful. So if you want to if you want to ask, is it a poem or is it history? 
Well, check the table of contents. It's, it's so Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, uh, Song of Solomon. Uh, th- th- those those are those were put in the poetry section, so you can sort of know their poems. And 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 here's the thing with Western people is Western people make a uh, make a conclusion that Eastern people don't, and that is if it's not literal, it's not true. Well, that's 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 fallacious. Actually, some of the most profound truths are told in fiction form, and, and we sort of know that. Like, uh, like if 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 I was to take you to Israel and you were to ask the history expert, can you take us to the farm where the parable of the prodigal son actually happened? They'd be like, "What? That's a made up. What? That's a that's a fiction story Jesus was telling to make a point about life." Um, and so, and and the parable of the prodigal son actually has some profound truths in it, even though it's a made-up story. Now, it, it's literal in the sense that Jesus told the story, um, but but to interpret that story, uh, I, I tell people, you don't have to read the Bible literally. You need to read it literally, which is if the original author was writing something literal, then yeah. Um, but if the original author is writing a poem, and some, and to be fair to your point, some some are easier than others. Like, don't interpret the Song of Solomon literally. It, it, it's a pro- her nose was not actually a tower. Her, her legs were not literally cedar trees, right? You know, so these are these are things that uh, that that are more obvious. But some things, to be fair, are more nuanced. We're taking calls one eight hundred three sixteen three sixteen. Let's take a call from Simone in Adelaide in Salisbury. Hello, Simone. Welcome along. Hi, how are you? I just wanted to really, more than a question, I wanted to say thank you very much to Shane Willard. I follow you on YouTube and uh, you've really enriched my Bible uh, in the way that I read it. You've added salt by connecting all the dots with regards to reading it uh, with a Jewish perspective. And I'm so grateful and God bless you in everything that you do. Well, oh, thank you very much, Simone. I, I, I love your town. I've, I speak down there a couple times a year. And, yes, um, anytime, we've seen you, anytime, yes. Oh, great. Anytime I'm around, uh, come say hello and introduce yourself. I will. Simone, wonderful to hear from you. Thank you so much for your call. 1-800-316-316 to join in our conversation. You can also respond to our Facebook question today. And the Facebook question says this. What is the biggest mistake you see Christians make when they use the Bible or sharing their faith? Uh, Some responses here. Sue says, when some use the Bible out of context for their own agenda or opinion, and when sharing faith is always good to glorify God and not oneself. It's an interesting one from Sue, but the idea of glorifying God or or showing everyone how wonderful you are and your ability to to unpack the scriptures, perhaps. What are your thoughts for someone like Sue? Oh, I think think that's that's a great point, that a lot of times... Um, we're saying God, Jesus, Bible, Scripture, truth, but what we're what we're actually communicating is a giant projection of our preference. So in that sense, there's a way that you can say God, and what you mean is a giant version of you. It's you with a giant megaphone. Um, and and uh, but actually, God is never to be spoke of as a projection, but rather a projectile. Uh, one that cuts through all of it. For it, 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 to, to to that point, one of the things I hope happens, um, uh, you know, out of this COVID thing, is that the church loses a lot of its language around God existing. 
um, I'm not I'm not mad if somebody says God exists, I'm not mad at them because I know what they mean. What they mean is is God is real, right? And amen. But when we say existing, for something to exist, it has to be an object outside of you. Um, and that's not Christianity at all. Actually, that was that was all the religions of the ancient world where there was an existent temple, an external object. There was you would go to the existent place at the existent time and do an outside of you ritual. And then maybe that existent God would act on your behalf. But the way Christianity changed the world is they said, no, our, our God does not exist. Um, as a matter of fact, in the first century, Christians were killed by the Roman emperor Trajan, and the charge was atheism. Uh, the reason is, is because the Roman governors would ask the Christians, where does your God exist? In other words, where's his temple? Where's his, where's his image? Where, where are you doing rituals and taking offerings so we can get our cut, in other words? And, and Christianity said, no, 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 our God does not exist in temples. Our God insists. There is one spirit of Christ holding the whole thing together. Well, that was a disaster for the Roman Empire because the Roman Empire ran on a nine-layered class system. And so if and, and only an existent God that sits above something um, can can have a class system like that where you can treat women worse than men, you can treat black people worse than white people, you can treat rich people better than poor people. Um, but if you have one Christ holding the whole thing together, insisting in all things, as Ephesians says and Colossians says, then you can't treat women worse than men. You can't treat blacks worse than whites. You can't treat the poor worse than the rich because there is one spirit holding the whole thing together and we are demanded to honor the spirit of God in every person. And so, um, and so a better way to speak of God is that God is real and God insists instead of an, like God, the God of Christianity was not someone that sat above the mess, but rather engaged the mess in order to make a better story. That's one of the meanings of the cross is that he didn't come into the world to condemn the broken story, but rather to engage the chaos in order to make a new life, fresh starts, second chances and an opportunity to write a better story. And by the way, the New Testament writers said that's what he did at creation, too, is he engaged the primordial chaos and made beauty out of the disorder that God is not too holy to be a part of your broken story. God is actually too holy not to engage it in order to make a better story. Just to bring this into the very present that we're right in now, Shane, and uh, some will appreciate that, uh, you know, there are a lot of people who would say, where does God exist in Australia? And we might point to church buildings. Uh, but there is a sense here in which uh, if we're just uh, using the illustration you're just showing us now, that, uh, that the presence of God in the individual, in the believer and uh, taking that back and connecting it to those ideas that you were sharing before the news about uh, how we understand uh, some of those powerful things in the book of Revelation, that there is being on the side of Christ and not on yep. the side of a growing oppression. Because some people will see there's a growing oppression that's happening around the world, especially in the Western world where things are changing very dramatically. How do those sorts of things relate, do you think, about understanding this insistence of God in the heart of the human? Well, I think, I think, it's, I think it's not just necessary. It is critical. If we, ever, if we ever lose sight that in him and for him and through him all things were made and by him all things hold together and you know and as ephesians 1 said for the spirit of the risen christ is filling everything in every way if we if we don't acknowledge in our awareness that the spirit of god is already in all things the, then we will necessarily create another us and them 
in and out. We'll, we'll justify treating the other worse than the non-other. And that, and that becomes a problem. And, and this has huge, huge implications when it comes to, like, say, church planting or missions. So, so somebody might say, we're going to bring Jesus to uh, Thailand, right? Well, th that's one way to look at it. But the other way to look at it is, is that the spirit of Christ is already at work in the people of Thailand. And I'm going to go and help them put a name to it. I'm going to help them put a name to whatever to, I'm going to help them name what's been going on in them uh, all along. And, and you see that in the Bible in um, Acts when Paul shows up at Athens and he's like, man, there's so many gods here. You can't even hardly name them all. Right. And he says, uh, um, he says, but I see amongst all your gods, there is an altar to an unknown God. Um, and I want to give you his name. What a brilliant, in other words, and, and there's, a, there's a great history to that. If you, if you have a second, I can tell it. Um, <clears throat> the, uh, the, the, the altar to the unknown God outside of the Oropagus in Athens found its um, origins with an Athenian king named Megacles. And Megacles, um, tort he, he took over the followers of Cylon. And he said, listen, if you guys agree to become slaves, we won't kill you. But he lied. They, they used him as sport, did barbaric things to them. It was horrible. Well, a, a plague uh, came on Athens. And the people of Athens thought it was the gods being upset with Megacles' deception. And so, um, and so what they did was, is they said, well, we need to sacrifice to whichever God is ticked off to make us better. And, um, and of course, the problem is, is if you've got a thousand gods, which one's ticked off? So here's what they did. They did a uniform sacrifice to every god in Athens at the same time. And that, that, that sort of covered their bases. Well, the plague didn't lift. And so the, the city council went and saw a Pythian oracle and said, listen, um, we, we've sacrificed all our gods and the plague's still here. And, and she said, well, there must be a god that you don't know his name, and it's him you must appease. And so they went and found a Cretan prophet named Epimenides, and Epimenides came back up, and he saw the carnage, and he said that there is an unknown god. We don't know his name. So here's what he did. He, he ordered all uh, the sheep to be cornered into this stone area where they couldn't eat, and then he ordered all the stonemasons to be there at sunrise. And at sunrise, he released the sheep into a grassy knoll. And he prayed a prayer like this. I don't have it right in front of me, but he prayed a prayer like this. Oh, great unknown God, please forgive us for our ignorance of your great name. We just don't know who you are. But if you will show us what pleases you by whatever sheep grazes normally, we'll know that sheep does not please you. But whatever sheep lays down despite being starving well, no, that's the sheep that pleases you. And, and so they released the sheep and, and a couple sheep laid down and he ordered the stonemasons to build an altar right on where they laid. And then they sacrificed those sheep to an unknown God and the plague lifted. So for, that happened in 630 BC. So um, for 600 years, they had been worshiping all their gods, but they, but the unknown God was the God of gods. That was the God almighty. That was the one in him, in him we live and move and have our being. And so Paul shows up 600 years later and says, uh, oh, you've been worshiping him for years. I guess it's about time you knew his name. Wow. And Shane, interestingly here, when we might be able to talk about how God leads people uh, who have not been worshippers of the unknown God, uh, the true God, uh, when, we, when we see how God uses circumstances to bring people to himself and to reveal himself, 
I wonder whether that really even changes the way we look at some of the crisis and the conflict that might be emerging right now as opportunities that God is making. Is is that a relevant well, way to think of those things? You rec- I mean, like, I, Neil, you know, you're you're obviously a Christ follower, and and so am I. And the people listening to this are largely uh, Christ followers, and and I think you've just nailed like the whole point of the cross event. Like if you, like if uh, um, I would say to anybody listening, have, have you ever had a, a, a circumstance hit your life and you didn't say it out loud, but you laid in bed and you thought God is dead? Um, or and what you mean by that is, is that what I thought God was is, is dead. That I, um, if, if God was who I thought he was, this wouldn't have happened. So whatever I thought God was, is, is dead and I need to rethink about how God works in my world. Well, isn't the central cry of the cross a cry of that level of doubt? Like, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So if you've ever had a, a circumstance where you thought God had forsaken you, um, that is the cross is Christ's way of saying, yeah, I get it. I, I understand. I, I, I'm with you on that. And, 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 and how new, how new life and fresh starts come from those perceived disasters. Wow. Let's take another call. Running short of time. Warren is in Esperance in WA. Hello, Warren. Welcome. Yeah. Hello. How are you? Good, Warren. What are your thoughts? Um, um, uh, first of all, I'd like to thank Shane for the history behind the Bible. That's, that's great stuff. But um, I, I teach kids uh, in mid-primary age, you know, years three and four, and um, uh, it's always been on my heart to, to get them to know the Bible, but I wonder if Shane would have um, uh, an idea or an opinion on, on whether you teach kids um, the books, how to learn the books of the Bible, where to find books in the Bible, or teach the stories from the Bible, or now maybe even the history behind how the Bible was established. What What is uh, Shane's opinion on, you know, what the kids ought to know at that age? Fabulous thought, Warren. Shane, your thoughts? Well, for... I think... Oh, yeah, thank you, Warren, for the call. And um, I've, I've never been to Esperance, but I did have I did have dinner once with a like a federal member from there. So uh, I'm, I'm glad that you called in. Um, the I, I would say that anytime you're dealing with children, um, y- we have to discern what is uh, what is age appropriate for them to to handle. So so for instance, we we at, at seven years old is probably not the time to read Deuteronomy 25, where it says, if a woman punches a man in the crotch, her hand should be chopped off, and then try to explain that, right? It's probably, that's a more nuanced discussion for another time. Um, the, but the, the main stories, the thing where children, and Jesus was onto something. He, he, he said, seeing the world as a child sees the world helps people engage the kingdom. And, and, and as we become adults, and, and everything has to be linear and boxed in, uh, that sort of uh, hinders our faith. Uh, and I think one of the things that is the advantage with children is that they don't have any trouble finding the morality or the lesson in a, in a, in a narrative. So you, so, so with children, I, I would recommend sticking with, uh, with circular stories instead of linear line upon line things because they, uh, they, they learn from story naturally. And, um, and I just, I, I, 
I don't know that I'm gifted to talk to kids. As a matter of fact, I'm quite sure I'm not. I uh, said, so this is this is one area that's a bit out of my metron. But you as a professional teacher, I would actually I probably should be asking you. But the uh, um, but I would say to make sure you know they you probably don't need to use the word genre, but to explain this is a poem or this is a this is a, a made up story of, that teaches us something um, helps us helps them later to overcome the hyperbolic straw men sometimes atheists use to get our children not to believe in them. Yeah, yeah, and that's a big problem. When uh, when I leave primary age to primary school and get into high school and start uh, um, searching for themselves. You want them to be strong before they get there, you know, in their knowledge yeah. of the Bible. Yep. And, uh, Warren. Yeah. Their knowledge and their knowledge of Google. Like, like, like <laughs> yeah. 25, years, 25 years ago, you had to actually read the Bible to know what was in it. Now you can know what's in it without reading it. That's dangerous because you could just Google it. And, and, and eight-year-olds are good at it. <clears throat> Warren from Esperance, thank you so much for your call. Time has run out. And uh, just uh, just a little clarification here when we're talking about, uh, as you say, Shane, you're used to teaching adults. Uh, yeah. You've got some people who are experts on teaching children. There is a certain sense in which uh, you don't want to take away from those teachers of children the idea of Never. forming those concrete foundations in little ears that are listening uh, because uh, talking through some of these bigger issues and more complicated, sophisticated ways of being able to understand the cultural and the literary genres of the scriptures, those things come later, don't they? So I guess we're going, to, we're going to start with concrete things and we're going to grow more complex as we become more mature yeah and i think the most concrete thing that that needs to that children need to know is that that when you say the word god god is like jesus exactly like jesus god has always been like jesus and so to start with the jesus stories and to tie that way of seeing the world to if god was in a man this is how god would be acting and that forms primary images of god that are more healthy well, it's not lost on us that this is Holy Week. This is Passion Week. All eyes on Jesus. All eyes on Good Friday, the crucifixion, and then towards the resurrection. Well, uh, Shane, I think you've won a few more fans today. I think there'd be an awful lot of listeners saying, well, I wouldn't mind being in a Bible class with Shane Willard. Well, Shane Willard Ministries is Shane's uh, his, uh, ministry, and there is a website where you can connect with Shane, shanewillardministries.org. And uh, Shane has written some books. Uh, there's one called Restoring the Withered Soul. He's also got dozens and dozens of DVDs, CDs and audio resources on a large variety of topics, uh, ones that I noted, especially given that this is the lead up to Easter, the Jewish roots of Easter, also the cross as you've never seen it before and how to read the Bible like a Hebrew. You'll be able to access all sorts of good resources on Shane's website, Shane Willard Ministries. Dot org. Shane, I want to say thank you so much for taking some time to share your thoughts and your heart with us today on 2020. Thanks, Neil. It's been, a, it's been an honour, man. Thank you. Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au.